without a strong sense of self-love, you're just never okay. You know, and that's why I think this message of self-love, as hard as it is for men to hear, as hard as it is especially for accomplished men to hear, we know it's true because we've listened to the voice inside us for our entire life saying, you're not good enough. That is Jason Garner, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, what's going on? What's happening? How are you guys? I missed you. Good to see you again. What's going on? It's Rich Roll here, your friendly neighborhood podcast host. The podcast that bears my name. I am your host. Uh, it's the podcast where I sit down with the outliers, the big forward thinkers, the paradigm breakers across all categories of positive culture change. And the goal is simple. The goal is to just help all of us unlock and unleash our best, most authentic selves. So thank you so much for tuning into the show, for subscribing on iTunes, for checking out the weekly newsletter, for giving us a review on iTunes, and for always making sure to use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. You're going to buy something on Amazon, right? Well, why not click through our banner ad first? It's just a really great, free, simple, easy way to support the podcast mission. It doesn't cost you anything extra. Amazon kicks us some loose commission change. I think it's like 2 to 3% depending upon what you buy. And if you're buying a big ticket item, like that is significant and it really does help put some nice wind in our sails. Uh, we greatly appreciate everybody who's made a habit of it, and it really has made it possible for me to do things like jump on a plane and fly up to Northern California to bang out some podcast interviews or do what I did a couple weeks ago or actually just like a week ago, go to Vancouver for one podcast interview. Uh, and uh, I'd like to be able to continue doing that to chase the really great interviews and that costs money. Uh, so we appreciate uh, you guys sort of uh, availing yourself of the Amazon banner ad. It really does allow us to, to do all that kind of stuff. So really, really appreciate it. All right, let's uh, quickly take care of uh, a little business, shall we? We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll 
and use code RICHROLL10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care especially because, unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you, I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. All right, I got Jason Garner on the show today. Uh, Super interesting cat. And this is sort of a continuation of my series of conversations with people who are experts and practitioners in the meditation and mindfulness space. And typically, uh, when I talk to these individuals, they're people who have sort of been reared in this world. It's part of the kind of fabric of their their DNA, Uh, but not the case 
with Jason. Uh, he comes from a very different background, and his sort of unique origin story is what originally drew me to him uh, and got me interested in, in his message because it's unlike any that I've ever heard before. So what is that story? Well, Jason was a guy who was raised by a single mom in kind of an unstable family environment that involved trailer parks and a lot of moving around. Uh, and as a result of this upbringing, he was forced at a very early age to learn how to fend for himself. He became a very street smart, scrappy kid uh, who began working and hustling at a very early age, initially as a parking lot attendant at a local flea market, and then slowly but surely, year after year, working his way up until one day, at age 37, he's named to become CEO of Global Music at Live Nation. Live Nation. For those that don't know, Live Nation is the world's largest concert promotion and ticketing company on the planet. It is the company that is at the epicenter and is arguably the most essential large corporate interest in the entire music business. Uh, so basically, before he's 40, this is a guy who becomes the number two guy in the whole enterprise, serving underneath CEO Michael Rapino, who is a you know much respected and, and renowned executive. Uh, Jason was twice named to Fortune Magazine's list of the top 20 highest paid executives under 40. So what am I saying? Well, this guy had a huge job at the very top of an industry that many would kill to be part of. But here's the thing. Along the way, he never learned to take a breath. He never paused for even a second, operating on the idea that in order to be loved, you have to be the best. So it's not surprising that over the tenure of what is a very sexy career on its face, I mean, it literally involves making boatloads of money while hanging out with rock stars and sports legends. Jason was married twice and divorced twice. And his second divorce, which came on the heels of the sudden death of his mother from stomach cancer, rattled him so severely that it forced him for the first time in his entire life to really take a look at and reevaluate what mattered, what's important. And in the wake of his mother's passing, Jason did uh, what in the entertainment business would be unthinkable. He took a break. He just opted out. He began to study health and spirituality. He got to know himself and the inner workings of his mind. He met the woman of his dreams. And for the first time in his life, he actually breathed. And Jason ended up ultimately walking out on that career, a career, again, that so many would kill for. But you know what? He's never been happier, and he's never been more personally fulfilled. So today he's a spiritual student, a meditation and mindfulness teacher who's spent literally thousands of hours sitting cross-legged with masters of body, mind, and spirit. And he shares his insightful, thought-provoking musings at, on his website at jasongardner.com. And he's the author of a great book uh, that I enjoyed very much called And Then I Breathe. So I met Jason at uh, his friend and mentor's house, Guru Singh. Guru Singh is a Sikh. He's an amazing Sikh spiritual teacher and yoga master who is very well known in Los Angeles, uh, particularly amongst the spiritual circles. He's been around for a long time. Uh, and we actually conducted the interview in Guru Singh's meditation room. So my hope is that all of the Shakti uh, from that environment, from that room, 
penetrates you through the airwaves. So this is a very cool conversation with Jason uh, about his life arc and, of course, about all things meditation and mindfulness and particularly how we can uh, express and exude and manifest um, these practices and these qualities in the midst and in the context of our, our of our busy modern lives. So I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, I really think you will too. Uh, it was my pleasure and honor to talk to Jason. And so without further ado, uh, let's enter uh, Guru Singh's meditation room, take a seat on a pillow, and uh, enjoy the life story of Jason Garner. I feel like to open this up or to set the stage, uh, we should at least do some form of brief meditation or perhaps a breathing exercise. Maybe you could uh, guide us through that. Not too long. (laughs) It doesn't make for good podcasting. I don't want anyone to fall asleep behind the wheel. I I actually just wrote a blog. um, And I think it's a very, like a really short meditation, an interesting way to look at meditation and perhaps life and it came from a conversation i had with a friend of mine who lifts a lot of weights and um he came to me and he was having some and just the kind of trouble that we all have find ourselves in from time to time and he said um would you teach me to meditate i've been having trouble and i don't know why but it just dawned on me i said would you walk me through verbally how to do one rep on the bench press Mm-hmm. And so he said, lie down, position your hands, focus your eyes, take a deep breath, pick the bar up, drop the bar to your chest, breathe out as you push the bar back, and replace the bar. And I said, beautiful, okay, then just do, do me a favor, sit down with me, put your hands in your lap, take a deep breath, focus on the breath. Let the breath dance for a moment. Exhale. And I said, that's one rep of meditation. I think Uh. like, you know, I think like we can get really caught up in making some of this stuff really difficult. And um, a a teacher of mine, Bruce Lipton, says like we can make it woo-woo, right? Mm -hmm. Or we can make these things like just really part of our our real life, just a a step in life or a rep in, in exercise. And I think that really, for me is what meditation consists of because you know if we're in the gym and I'm working out and you walked up and I got distracted quote unquote from my workout I would just have a conversation and then I wouldn't beat myself up I would just lie back down mm-hmm. and I would keep going with my with my workout and I think the same's true in in meditation right we get distracted and that moment of distraction so, for so many of us becomes this moment that we beat the crap out of ourselves, right? Like, oh, right. I suck at meditation. I can't do this. When in reality, it's just the same thing. Okay, you got distracted. And one of my teachers, Sharon Salzberg, taught me this this beautiful thing. That moment of distraction is the whole purpose of meditation because it's a process of beginning a new relationship with ourselves. And so in that moment, we ha- we get to choose between being really hard on ourselves or or she taught me to say, Welcome back, Jason. I mm-hmm. love you. Mm-hmm. And then you come back to the meditation, and then you go, well, where do I start again? And the answer is you just do another rep. Right. You take a deep breath in. You stay present to the breath. You let the breath dance on the exhale, and that's another rep, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I like that. I like that, uh, the, the bench press analogy. So 
to continue on that thought, uh, like me walking up to you while you're bench pressing as an interloper, I'm the thought, right? That's that would right. be interloping on your meditation practice. And um, I think we're so we're, we're we're so hardwired to judge, right? So when that thought creeps up and appears, we immediately label it as a failure of our attempt to meditate. When in fact, that's just part and parcel of the process itself. It is the function of what you're doing, right? And yeah. it's our relationship to that thought and trying to refrain from judging it and saying, this is the process that yeah. becomes freeing and allows you to maybe more deeply engage in that practice. I, I think that's just beautifully yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. My, my friend, that's it. <laughs> do, you know, uh, do you know Charlie Knowles? No. He's a meditation, he's a Vedic meditation teacher, a friend of mine. And he says, he always says, uh, there is no failure in meditation because it's true. Everyone says, oh, I, I tried it. I can't do it. I keep thinking about things. Well, it's yeah. like, yeah, yeah, you're a human being, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think like if we start to think of meditation, I think one of the challenges is that we compartmentalize so much, right? So we have like this idea of like work-life balance, right? As if work is not part of life, uh -huh. right? As if the, the Jason that does business is a different Jason that comes home to his wife, is a different Jason that goes to the ball game with his friend. Mm -hmm. So then I then say, oh, well, meditation is this segmented part of my life, this box that I go into where I'm going to experience peace and bells and whistles or, you know, fairies and unicorns, like I like to say. But if we look at meditation more as just practice of how do I want to show up in real life, then it kind of makes it a little bit difficult to be so hard on yourself because... I'm going to get distracted in life. Mm -hmm. if, if there's even such thing as distraction, right? Like maybe better stated, life is going to occur while I'm in life. So when I sit down to meditate, life doesn't stop. Things are happening, right? And so if I'm in an argument with my wife and I sit down to meditate, thoughts of that argument are going to occur. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, all meditation then is, is a practice of how do I want to engage with that thought and how do I want to engage with myself? And and so it really is my, it's like LeBron James shooting a thousand free throws before a game. Why? So when he gets into the game, he can make the free throw. So meditation just is that practice before I go out and march into the real world and have some you know, driver on the 405 flip me off and tell me I'm an asshole, right? It's right. Like, now, how do, if I can't engage with myself in a civil way, in a loving way, when I have a distracting thought and meditation how am i going to deal with that person right yeah. right right yeah that that reminds me of that famous quote uh from victor frankel he said between stillness and response there is a space in that space our power is our power to choose our response in our response lies our growth and our freedom yeah right, right. so yeah. it's carrying that into the world and i think that brings up an interesting kind of discussion that maybe we could have around you know, this idea of what is spirituality, right? Mm. Because you're somebody who's very much in the world, uh, maybe not so much as you were before, yeah. <laughs> but, but, and we're going to get into that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we live in Western culture. We're not, we're not in caves in the, in the Himalayas. And, and, and when you bring up in modern society, particularly amongst, you know, entrepreneurs or type A personalities or athletes or entertainers, because we're in Los Angeles, if you say, if you, if you use the word spirituality or new age or something like that, there are associations that come up um, that I think create barriers to 
um, you know, avenues of personal growth that are very useful in our daily lives. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. And I, I've kind of tried to brand or, or set the tone for what I talk about as real life spirituality, right? It's like not dogmatic, um, not tied to any religion. In fact, I've just been blessed with teachers from every, you know, mm-hmm. from Christian teachers to Sikh teachers to Tibetan Buddhist, et cetera, Taoist. And, and really what I tried to, to draw from each of these teachers were things that actually work to make my life happier. You know, it's like so much of this stuff is, oh, I'm a whatever, and therefore I have to think a certain way. I have to believe certain things. And, and coming from an entrepreneurial background where I wrote a, a blog the other day called Spiritual Entrepreneurship. I know, I read, I read it. I like, want to talk about that, too. Yeah, and it's like, I think we have this opportunity where I don't have to be a anything. I can be a Jason. And then I can pick and choose things spiritually that make my life more full of spirit, right? That make my life happier and more joyful and more fulfilled or more loving or whatever, you know, whatever metric I'm, I'm looking for to measure my life in. And... I think these words kind of take on these these meanings. And I, I know I, I think about this a lot in terms of my diet, right? It's like, so what are you? Well, if I tell you I'm vegan and then I order something with honey, right. you're going to give me a dirty look, yeah, right? It's yeah. like, I'm a Jason. I'm just making the best decisions I can in, in, in every moment. And so I think I really try to stay away from the labels. And I think spirituality is important because I believe we have a spirit, so I think not saying spirituality kind of is a way that we can sometimes shut down the fact that we have a spirit in addition to a brain. Mm-hmm. But I don't think spirituality necessarily has to be quite as out there as we talk about. I think spirituality is this conversation. Spirituality is how I show up on the freeway. Spirituality is an ingrained part of all of us, and it goes with us to work, and it goes with us to the ball game, and then it comes with us to the meditation cushion as well, just mm-hmm. like life comes with us to the meditation cushion. Mm-hmm. You know? So sort of uh, uh, you know, dismissing dogmatic labels and approaches and just trying to be more experiential in it, I suppose, is kind of what yeah, you're saying. And, and present to ourselves. I mean, I think the challenge is that if we come from a life where we have beat the crap out of ourselves, right? And so many of us have we were we were raised in a society and by parents who whether they meant to or not often taught us that we were loved when we did something good hey you took your first step oh mommy Mm -hmm. loves you right you broke the dish that's a naughty boy go sit in the corner and these things feel innocent except for after a thousand and then ten thousand and then a million and then however many gazillions of repetitions we learn we are good when we do something so then we come to spirituality and we apply that same rule, right? And so now I've come to meditate or I've come to do yoga or I've come to pray or I've come to whatever and I'm looking for a little bit of peace. I'm looking for a little bit of from the world, right? Mm-hmm. And what do I do? I start right in on, well, I'm good at this if I can sit for five minutes without distraction. I'm good at this if I can do downward dog without getting dizzy. I'm good with this. And here we started it again, right? And I think for me, this has been an exercise of really learning to love myself with a big period at the end of that sentence, not an if. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, so for me, 
I don't care what my meditative experience is as as long as it includes some love for myself. So if at the end of sitting for 20 minutes I was distracted and I just you know couldn't focus on my breath and my mind kept going to meeting with ritual, <laughs> as long as in that process I'm gentle with myself, and as long as that process was a process of understanding myself and being okay with that, for me, that was all the success in the world, yeah? Right, interesting. Yeah, I mean, a couple observations on that. I mean, the first one is, and you kind of alluded to it at the beginning, at the top of the conversation, which is, uh, you know, we get caught up in 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 uh, overanalyzing or overcomplicating the practical aspects of just doing, right? Mm-hmm. So as somebody who's in, you know, multi-sport, it's all about like, well, what kind of watch are you? You know, what's your garment GPS watch and what kind of shoes and are these the right kind of socks? And it's like, these are all barriers to you just going outside and, and, and moving your feet, right? And yeah. in the same way, I think people get caught up in, in, in these techniques of meditation and there are barriers to actually just sitting down and doing it. Like, yeah. it can't be as simple as just your breath, right? Like, give me the VIP. I want to go behind the velvet rope. You know, I'm a type A guy. Tell me the secret. And just overanalyzing and overanalyzing. Meanwhile, days and days are going by where you're actually not doing anything. Yeah. You know, it's a barrier. It's it's preventing you from actually just accessing it. So I think it is important to just simplify it and not get caught up in those labels, those dogmatic kind of ideas about it. And the other other thing that you, you kind of brought up um, is this idea of self-acceptance and self-love. And I think that uh, if I had to kind of identify an overarching theme in, in everything that you express in your book and your blog and, and your speaking, et cetera, it is this idea of, of self-love, mm-hmm. right? So, so, you know, where does that come from in your own experience? And we're going to go back and get into all of that. But, like, clearly that's, that, is, that seems to be the predominant kind of message that you're trying to express. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really don't, in my own life, there's just not much more than that. You know, it's like, if, I mean, I th- you, you've just, you've achieved so much, right? And, and and so if at the end of, you know, competing in five straight decathlons, marathon, you know, these these massive events, right? Or in my case, at the end of, reaching a really high place in business, right? And then you sit down with yourself and if you and if you just don't have that self-love, right? If there's still a hole, if there's still a I've got to go do something more, you start to question what what it's all about, you know? And 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 for me that really came about when when my mom died and I think like so many young boys, I had worked really hard to make my mom proud. And at 37, you know, I'm holding her in my arms and she takes her last breath, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's no one left to be proud of you, right? It's like, there it is. Yeah, you know? so that suddenly you're, you're facing the mirror and having to look at yourself in yeah. a more objective light. And then you look at yourself and you say, well, who cares what job you have? You know, who, who cares what event you just competed in, right? It's like, does that mean, are you content? Are you happy? Are you, are you loved? And for me, the answer was no. For me, the answer was I had so closely tied love with work that the answer the answer to I need to feel love came from work more and do more. And then as I got to that new pinnacle, it was like, do more and then do more and then do more. And that's a guaranteed recipe to work yourself to death. 
And for me, you know, out of that really deep heartache of, of being with my mom as she died, it just kind of snapped me out of it. And I became aware. I didn't know at the time what, but I knew I had to start doing something, something different. And as I have engaged in, in something perhaps a bit more connected to my heart, what I've become really passionate about is talking to people who have lived the life that I've lived, anybody who has been really driven by achieving, just to share this message of self-love and that we're loved for who we are, not what we do. Mm-hmm. And that we first all time intellectually I, know that, yeah, but yeah. we don't actually <sighs> really intuit that into our daily experience. Yeah, man. The first time I heard that, I was with my therapist in here in Beverly Hills, and I sat down. And she said that, and I was same thing. I was like intellectually, like yeah, yeah, I get it. And she said, "Let's take some deep breaths," you know, and. <sighs> She said, why don't you just say that? I, I am love for who I am, not what I do. I am love for who... And then I just broke down, you know, and I literally uh-huh. like one of those lie down the fetal position, just crying and crying and crying because intellectually I, I understood it, but it wasn't true. It just, it wasn't, or as one of my teachers says, it was real, but it wasn't true. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't my, it wasn't my truth. And, and I just thought... I mean, it really was heartbreaking for me. I'd worked so hard my entire life, and I had overcome so many obstacles from a trailer in the desert in Arizona to sitting next to Michael Rapino and, and doing my part of running the largest concert company in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and I didn't love myself, and I didn't feel like the world loved me. And and so that that path from there six years ago to to today has been all about self-love. And so... For me, I mean, I love talking about all of it, but self-love is just that's just the, that's the, the juicy, thing. meaty part of all of this that we that I feel is the the thing that can really change our lives. Right, and, and this idea of of you're loved for who you are and not what you do. I mean, when you are um, somebody who is you know so successful and whose life really revolves around career, uh, parsing out the difference between who you are and what you do is a, is a very difficult uh, archaeological dig, yeah. right? Because those are one and the same. So yeah. you were finally in a place where you were ready to kind of have a funeral ceremony over what you do as being so innately identified with who you are. So yeah. I think it was a timing thing as well, of course, because yeah. you wouldn't have been even out of therapist <laughs> unless you wanted to start right. you know, grappling with these ideas. But to put all of this into context, you know, why don't, this is a good moment to kind of go back and, and uh, y- you know, go through the chronology a little bit from, you know, the trailer park in Arizona and yeah. being raised by a single mom and kind of being a, you know, a scrappy, uh, a scrappy, you know, go-getter <laughs> as a kid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, um, yeah, I, my sister and I were raised almost exclusively by my mom. My, my dad, who I knew in just glimpses of, of life wasn't around much. Uh, in my book, I described it as you know, he was there just enough to kind of rub salt in the wound of the kids that, you know, perfect. Yeah. You know, I, I just, when I would get <laughs> yeah. used to, I don't have a dad, he'd show up and uh-huh. make me miss having a dad again, you know? And my mom, um, was just this big heart. I mean, she was a daycare teacher. Um, she took care of children with, uh, autism and with, um, severe physical handicaps. She worked at my school as an aide. Mm. Um, most of my life, she was working two to three jobs a day. 
trying to make ends ends meet. And um, and so I grew up with this really strong theme that that money was lacking and that money was was important. And my mom wouldn't have ever said to me money was important. Mm-hmm. But I saw, I heard her crying at night in the room next door because she couldn't pay the bills, right? And when it was tax season and she had to come up with, you know, whatever her tax bill was, it was drama. And when Christmas came around, she instead of taking a vacation, she'd get, have her work just, she'd work that week, get paid for it so she could buy us Christmas gifts. And I think somewhere really young, I decided I knew how to fix this and I was going to make money. And so as a little kid, I mean, I remember washing dishes at, I must have been five or six to get, you know, a couple extra bucks. Uh-huh. And um, when I was in uh, grade school, I'd have my mom drop me off at the corner and I would take 50 cents or a quarter and I'd go to 7-Eleven, I'd buy a pack of gum and I'd go to the schoolyard, I'd sell each piece for a quarter. <laughs> You're just like a hustler <laughs> yeah. from the get-go. Yeah. yeah. And, and and so I just and I just started figuring out, wow, this is a story I can change. We're not locked into poverty. And so once I once that clicked and it clicked really young for me, I started working and I just that's kind of all I remember. That was all that was important to me was I was gonna work, I was gonna make money. And I couldn't say it at the time, now I can't, and I was gonna save my mommy, right? I was mm-hmm. gonna I was gonna rescue the family. And so there was this heroic piece to it. As well, so I worked. Um, that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself as a little kid. Yeah, yeah, and that's that pressure. That's why when I had to say those words, "I'm loved for who I am, not what I do," it just broke me down. Right, mm-hmm. that that those years of pressure, all that pressure sitting on my back, it just flooded. You know, it just came pouring out of me. Mm-hmm. And, right. And well, was, it, the moment arose where. A, you no longer had to take care of your mom, and you were relieved of the duty of trying to be the hero that was going to save her and give her a better life. That's right. Right? That's right. And I was faced with having to you know, look at myself. I talk about in my book, you know, the, that first day after, after I didn't have the big job, so I, you, said, you said I was ready for the funeral for that part of me. I thought I was. Until I had to answer the question, like, what do you do? You know, who are you? And so I, I had moved to Manhattan Beach, and I was lying on the beach. and didn't have an answer for the question. Like, I did not know who Jason was because Jason had been the scrappy entrepreneur, the concert guy, the guy who can get mm-hmm. his good tickets, the, you know, the guy with the sexy job. He, that's who I had been for my entire life and now it was just some dude lying on the beach right right and and what is that and that was scary as hell that's terrifying yeah yeah that was scariest probably scariest moment of my life was am i going to be okay you know what is this not financially but am i going to be okay as a human being because i'm not i don't know who i am i don't have that that comfort blanket anymore right and so then you had to go on this postmodern Siddhartha journey (laughs) you went on. I mean, I relate to that completely. I mean, my, my scenario was not, not nearly as acute, but, you know, I walked out on a, you know, I was on the partnership track at a big law firm in Century City and I just couldn't do it anymore. And, uh, the most terrifying thing was walking out on that, just quitting without any other job or any idea what I was going to do next. And my whole life had been premised upon, you know, being on that habit trail. And I can remember, like I love to swim and I went to the Culver City Plunge, the outdoor pool there. 
and I swam and I was laying on the deck, just laying in the sun. And I had a similar experience of like, I have no idea like what I'm going to do tomorrow. And what does that mean? And my whole identity had been, you know, pulled out from underneath me. And that's a, it's scary, but it's also this beautiful moment of opportunity to not only wrestle with that, but to, you know, redefine it for yourself. Yeah. And that's that part that from, and I know that in, in the amazing things that you've accomplished, you've had to dig really deep. So what I'm going to say is not anything new to you, but it's like from those deep moments, right? Where we're just like in the bottom of a pit. Then I think a lot of beauty comes from that. It's not, you, you can't realize it at the time because you're in the pit, right? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or you're on mile whatever of some impossible run that you're, that you're doing, or you're at the office and you're, you know, drowning in, in work. But I think from these moments can come such beauty because it takes something like that to snap us out of this conditioning that, that we're right. conditioned in that all that matters is our job. And it's not, I am not saying that jobs don't matter because I'm a huge believer that in the society that we live now, money is really important. In fact, we can't even get clean air and clean water anymore without money. So money is right up there as one of those real important things. And so when people say, oh, money doesn't matter, I always say like, yeah, tell the single mom who's trying mm-hmm. to pay the rent. Like, that, that's bullshit, yeah, right? Yeah, that's not living in, in our 3D reality. That's right. But we also have to say love matters. And I think we spend... We've so kind of confused love and money that we've crowded out all the kind of real fulfilling love and we've replaced it with these efforts to make money and make money and make money. And this is why we wake up at 50 and have a midlife crisis or, you know, in my case at 37, right? Yeah. Or, or like my mom at, at 59, you work yourself into the grave, you know? And, and, and I just, there is not, there's nothing I wouldn't do to be able to be spending these years with my mom, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, it didn't, none of it mattered. And there was, I had this conversation with my mom as she was dying. And, and I just said that to her. I said, you know, I've accomplished so much and I would just trade it all. I mean, it makes me cry right now. Right. It's like, yeah. I'd give anything just to be able to spend a little bit more time with you. And I think this is this place that we, we all kind of find ourselves coming to. I think more and more we're reading about it. We have friends who are going through this where, You've worked your entire life, and then you just have this hole in your heart. And so the answer is not, you don't have to run away to the mountains of China <laughs> like I did, but you can breathe, you know? You can sit for a moment. You can enjoy a nutritious meal. You can care for yourself and realize that your feelings matter as much as the health of your business and as much as your mm-hmm. career, you know? That's not exactly a message that, you know, penetrates the, <laughs> uh, the you know, the masculine, you know, identity, right? Yeah. In our culture, it's yeah. like, the, you know, the, pro- the, the sort of preeminence of, of, of embracing love and understanding what's truly important. These are, you know, these are values that, that are sort of, deeply ingrained in us as young men as being at odds with, you know, the success equation of what it means to uh, be somebody uh, of value, yeah. right? And so you had to have your, your as my wife would call, your divine moment, yeah. you know, in order yeah. to recognize this and, and, you know, to kind of, again, set it in context. I mean, let's go back. So you're, you're in high school, you're, you're, you're scrapping it, yeah. <laughs> you're hustling. <laughs> at some point, music enters the equation. Like, how yeah. did that occur? So I, I was working at a flea market, and um, it was like the 
premier weekend job because they paid like $2 more than minimum wage. And you could get in a whole bunch of hours over the weekend. And You're like a parking lot attendant. I was a parking right? lot attendant. I was literally like wearing the orange hat and orange shirt, parking cars in the dirt for you know 10 hours a day on Saturday and Sunday. And I had the opportunity to get a promotion. And I was promoted to kind of be in charge of the the food and beverage patio operation where like, you know, in between buying fruits and vegetables, people would come and sit down and have a hot dog and a beer or a soda. And so I came up with the idea to build a stage. So I built the stage and then uh, I got my boss to give me a $500 budget and I would hire like local country Western bands, uh-huh. and local Mexican mariachi bands. And all of a sudden the beer sales start going up. And the food starts going up. And so I, it, at that moment, I just I realized, oh, there's this connection, right, between mm-hmm. people like music and it. And so that kind of piqued this little interest in me. There was a, there was a business there. And at some point along, along the way, after you know, the flea market ended, and um, I met a, a man in San Jose, California named Ruben Alvarez, and we formed a business called Alvarez and Garner, and we became Mexican music concert promoters. Uh-huh. And that was the beginning of the whole <laughs> concert thing. And literally, uh-huh. I was promoting like Mexican rodeos with singers on horses in, in ranches out in the outskirts of San Jose, uh-huh. California. <laughs> and, and that was the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a very uh, unusual path towards becoming a CEO, right? It, it, it wasn't the Wharton School of Business path. This is the, the school of crazy. life. Yeah. I remember when, when I got my big break and I was invited um, to move down to Los Angeles and join what was at the time called Clear Channel Entertainment. And one of my buddies who was a music writer up in San Jose, he said, you're going to run that place soon. And I was like, no, dude, I'm like, I'm like the Spanish language concert guy. Like, I, yeah. you're going to, you have no idea. And I, so it wasn't as if I was, you had some plan. No, like it just, Beautiful things happen, and in, and in that story, another beautiful thing that happens is a beautiful friendship ensues with with Michael Rapino, who mm-hmm. just mentored and guided me along the way, and really took that scrappy. I mean, I, I always had scrap scrappiness and 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 passion. Michael taught me how to turn that into a leader and into a real a real businessman, and that you know when I meet him, that's when my career really takes off, and. And I really kind of find a sense of of where I'm going in in business versus as the scrapper. It was I was just always scrapping for the next deal, right? Right, didn't, right. Didn't really think you four steps down play. the road. Yeah, That's right. long play in mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, in a little small worldism, uh, I'm friends with Michael. I don't know. That's actually overstating it. I don't know. I mean, we're acquainted. It's interesting. He read my book, Finding Ultra, and he reached out to me and I've had lunch with him and gotten to know him a little bit, How which beautiful. is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean. And and he struck me as I'm, I want to get him on the podcast because he's mm. such an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't what I expected in a CEO. Like if you just saw him, you know, sitting outside somewhere, you wouldn't say, "Oh, he's a big mocker." You know, yeah, like he's right. a he was yeah. really grounded and and like a really sweet guy. Yeah, I, I mean, I he he does not accept what I'm about to say, but he was my first guru, and to this day. I'll be sitting in a situation and I'll hear his voice telling me what to do. And it's like the business advice that he was giving me six, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago comes up for me all the time in sorting through spirituality and sorting through the right thing to do. And, and mm. 
and yeah, I mean, for me, just one of those epic mentors and epic changes in my life is when I meet Michael. And and then to be able to kind of be post working for him and to enjoy a, a continued friendship and a continued sharing is just a really oh, special thing. Oh, cool. So thing. you guys are still yeah. doing stuff together? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. It's really nice. Um, yeah, that's great. That's cool. And and just for people that are listening, it's not like Michael Rapino is sixty five years old. Like he's oh. like, is he younger than you? Like he's around. He's about your age, he, right? I think Michael's. Um, I think he's fifty. Is he fifty I'm, now? I'm, I'm forty two. He's a youthful fifty. But when I'm when I'm, I'll tell you the story. When I first met him, I had been sent to see him by my boss's boss. And at this point, Michael was running Europe. And was it still Clear Channel, or yeah. had it become Live Nation? No, yet? it was still uh-huh. Clear Channel. And um, so I go to take this meeting, and I, at this point, run Spanish-language music, and I kind of think I've made it in life, right? Kind of like I run a language, and it's this is pretty cool. So I sit down, and, and when I walk in his office, he's on the phone, and so I kind of start looking around. He's got clocks of all the different time zones. A really simple office. Like all, Michael's always had this, doesn't want a flashy office. That's not his thing. And all of a sudden, it dawns on me, like, this guy's a couple years older than me. He runs a continent. Mm-hmm. And and it was like, it was it was this really beautiful moment because it was like, oh wow, there's a lot more for me to do. Like I didn't, I haven't like capped out because I run uh-huh. Spanish music, uh-huh. you know. And it was like that for me. It was the it beginning your ceiling. of that relationship. Just more than anything, I would describe it as just expansive. I mean, he stretched me as like I was silly putty, and and I had to keep stepping into this this expansive role that I never would have thought that I had that in me had it not been for mm-hmm. for his leadership. And you're right, you meet him and it's like, you're just talking to a really smart, but a normal guy. Right, you know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And and not only like your first mentor, but I suppose on some level, a, a little bit of a father figure, I would imagine, even though he's kind of your contemporary in terms of age, yeah. uh, you know, as someone who kind of lacked that growing up. Yeah, I mean, I think throughout my life, I had to look for that kind of leadership. And so definitely older brother. And um, I mean, I, I, really, I really felt like I would go to work every day looking to make Michael proud, right? Was like, that was really kind of uh-huh. one of my core, core things. I wanted this person who I looked up to so much to look at me and say, hey, good job, and which he would do a lot, but good job, you, you nailed it. And I think now watching him, I think he, along with you know people like Mark Benioff and 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 others, but in this case, Michael, I'm just so proud of watching what has now become this really compassionate leader. Who all these things that we're talking about from you know, from a beautiful compassionate diet, caring about animals, to caring about workers, to helping his his employees with. There was a great article the other day about how they're they're helping children with autism have great concert experiences and Mm -hmm. he gets on conference calls and tells people if you're having trouble and the company can't solve it call me personally and i'll help you and he pays for people's cancer therapy i mean just this idea right that we can sit in our desks and we don't have to leave and we don't have to run a charity either we can run a business and we can show up as heart-filled human beings and really run our, our businesses with compassion and i think that just gives me so much hope because when we can see leaders with the type of responsibility that Michael Rapino has, 
bringing their heart to work with them. Mm-hmm. And that's really special. And so like more than anything now, I just look at him and just go like, I'm just so proud of how he's running that company, you know? It's, it's amazing. I mean, and the company is enormous, right? I yeah. mean, how many employees does Live Nation have? Well, my division, so I ran the global concert division for him and I had like 10,000. So I think he's got, you know, 25 or 30,000 employees. They promote, you know, 25,000 concerts a year. I mean, basically, if you've seen a, con- a concert, it was theirs. Right. And it's just like they have this global footprint and that's for anyone around the world <laughs> that has seen right. a concert. And, and, you know, and then you think about in that job, the pressure of dealing with rock stars and their agents and managers and fans and venue owners. I mean, it's a really pressure filled where you're kind of getting it from the amount from of every move, moving parts yeah. is just unbelievable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and really concerts have become the lifeblood of the entire industry in a much bigger way than, you know, I think people would have imagined 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Yeah. And he saw that. I mean, that I, I was talking to some investors the other day. Occasionally I'll get a phone call and someone will, Hey, can you, we want, we're looking at live nation. Can we talk to you? And they said, so did, did he like luck out or, and I said, no, he, he knew exactly where this whole thing was going. And they said, how do you know? And I said, well, cause I was in the room when he <laughs> drew it out on the chalkboard. Uh-huh. Like, you know, it's like, it, he, it was really one of these things where he, he, he really had this forward vision of where the music industry was going. And he understood that as the value of recorded music was shifting, that live was going to be the place that artists made money and that live was also unbootleggable, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you still want to go to see U2 live. Yeah, this this is not this cannot be distilled down into an app <laughs> that's on right. your phone. Yeah, you know, it's the one right. indispensable aspect of music that that you know can't be digitized. That's right. It's an in-person it is the live nation, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. And I think and just from him choosing that name, right? I mean, uh-huh. he really set the tone for what this was going to be and I think you know, a business that's been so known for being run by ruthless cold cats with big cigars, right? Like, to then have it being run by that guy, you know, my friend, my mentor, and a guy who just really cares about people and cares about igniting passion, not just in fans through a U2 concert, but in his employees and in the people that he comes in contact with. It's just, a, it's a, it's just amazing to think what that mm. what they can accomplish all that together with, you know, with Michael kind of leading the way with this open heart. I think it's really beautiful. Right. If you had to distill down like the core lessons of what Michael taught you in this mentor relationship, I mean, how would you articulate that? The number one thing that I think about all the time is he always taught me to take a left turn and look and kind of look out from a perspective that I wasn't looking at. Uh-huh. So he might not have met as big a left turn as you took though, <laughs> I right? So. I didn't mean go that far left. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I still yeah. need you to work yeah. for me. That's right. Yeah. I didn't mean turn into a hippie, but come yeah. on, man. But it was like, we would be in meetings and you know, you think about this as the concert business is an old historic business that was run by, you know, Bill Graham in San Francisco. So there's a lot of stuff that was just done before done away oh why because it's always been done that way oh why because bill did it that way or Mm -hmm. bobby did it that way and michael would always go okay let's blow that up now let's take a left turn and we'll look over here and then you'd model that out and then he'd go let's take a right turn and look over here and this whole kind of spiritual entrepreneurship that that i have that's my the michael rapino voice in me saying 
okay, cool, let's look at it a different way. Let's mm-hmm. look at it this way. What are you really getting from this? And there was always this theme in, in what he was teaching me of a lot of people have vested interests to keep things the way they are. And that doesn't usually turn out well for all of us young guys coming up, right? right. It's like the, the status quo benefits the people who are in charge of the status quo. And so I, he shattered any fear I had of blowing things up. And so... Yeah, because to make that left turn, you're going you're gonna to face a tremendous amount of resistance from that's right. the status quo, right? That's right. And so, you know, I, I just feel like I do it every day in, in my spiritual practice. And, you know, and I'm usually the lone guy in the baseball cap in the back of the, you know, Tibetan Buddhist meditation yeah. hall. And it's okay, right? I don't, it, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't make me fearful because I know that that's how innovation, innovation happens whether that's in business and, you know, as I talked about in that article about the iPhone, you know, it's uh-huh. like the iPhone, the iPhone covers everything from a 1970s Radio Shack ad. And yet our spirituality doesn't ever change because we think we're bad if we don't follow the rule from 2000 years ago. And yet when you study all of these spiritual masters, every single one of them, these guys were shit disturbers, man. These were, you talk mm-hmm. about scrappy these guys were scrappy. They were making it up. They were figuring out how to live a life that made them feel happy and fulfilled. And then they were sharing that, not a dogma. They were just sharing, hey, this is what I figured out that made me feel really good. And now you flash forward, however, you know, hundreds or thousands of years forward, and we got a list of rules that we got to follow mm-hmm. to be like them. And every time I read one of those rules, I just hear Michael like, let's make a left turn. You know? Right. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, that's a that's amazing how that voice is so present in you. Yeah. But at the same time, inherent in that is also this drive to please him, right? Which relates it back to your relationship with your mom, Definitely. and that becomes part of the problem for you that's and the right. obstacle that you ultimately have to overcome. But <clears throat> you know, back to this moment, at some point, I mean, he basically anoints you as essentially his number two, right? And yeah. you get this huge job. Uh, what is it? Glo- head of CEO of Global Music. Yeah, and, and it, it sounds. Yeah, I mean, it's like <laughs> sounds incredible, right? And in that capacity, your job is basically to oversee these gigantic concerts with the biggest acts in music: Jay Z, right. Beyonce, Coldplay. Like basically, you name it, right? Like yeah. any huge musical act, like this becomes your bailiwick. Yeah, yeah, and and so the little boy made it, right? I mean, there's just uh-huh. now there's no way of looking at my life. And at this point, I'm, you know, in mid-30s. And there's no way of looking at yeah, my life and not young. going, he made it. And and yet there's just this nagging kind of, I described in my book as this ever-growing monkey on my back. Like every promotion I got, it's like I would think, well, the monkey's going to go away now. And the monkey would just get bigger uh-huh. and bigger and bigger with all because the your, insecurities. Your, all your the sense fear. of self is still based on externalities, right? There's always another dude. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, you know, yeah. Steve Jobs is looking at Bill Gates and who knows who Bill Gates is looking at, but probably yeah. somebody, you yeah. know, like, like there's no end to that. You, you could just chase that like a heroin addict, you know, all the way to the grave. And you can't stop because you, cause my story was the only thing that made any sense for why I'd made it was because I worked harder. It was like the only thing I could kind of like, why did I make it? You know, I don't like, I didn't have a special education. I, as I told you, I was, you know, raised very humbly. Didn't, I didn't think I had anything special that like artists would like about, you know, it was like, mm-hmm. I was just some guy. And so, you know, you kind of, 
gel around this idea I think a lot of us do that well my secret sauce is that I outwork everybody. Yeah. I think that and I think that's fine except for it comes with a with a with a um aftertaste, right? It it comes with with this other part that said that then says, well then if I ever rest, I'm screwed. Right. The guy the guy coming up behind me is going to catch me. He's probably better than me. And they're going to figure out that I'm just not, you know, I remember going into board meetings just scared to death that all these powerful people on the board were going to figure out this is the yeah, guy from yeah. the flea market, man. Like, yeah. now, where's your orange hat? Get out of here. You know, and that, and that sense of insecurity was just, was haunting me because I just didn't have that core grounding within myself that said, you know, at, at its core, without a strong sense of self-love, you're just never okay. You know, and that's why I think this message of self-love as hard as it is for men to hear, as hard as it is, especially for accomplished men to hear, we know it's true because we've listened to the voice inside us for our entire life saying, you're not good enough. And the voice inside us questioning if we take a vacation, if something bad's going to happen. And the voice inside of us worrying every night that our company's going to fall apart while we sleep. And so without that sense of self-love, you just can never stop. You can never feel safe. And that's why I think this message is so important for for people who are starting to hear this voice and have these questions that this this is that part that then doesn't mean we have to leave what we're doing, but when we add self-love to the mix of what we're doing, we just become so much more powerful, you know, because mm-hmm. we don't have to overcome that hurdle. It's like without the self-love, it's like we just climbed the mountain our whole life. You know, and like you never can kind of stake the flag and right go when like, you think you're at the oh, top, yeah. there's you can peeking yeah. above over the horizon yeah, is a, is a right. higher peak. Yeah, and I mean, I share that sensibility completely. Like I know what that feels like. And in recovery, they call it self well run, run riot, right? Mm-hmm. Like this idea that you you are the architect of your success, and it and it drills down to this character trait that that this incessant propulsion machine that won't yeah. let, let you sleep. And so the prospect of of letting go of that, of surrendering that, and trying to find a more sustainable way to be is is terrifying, right? Yeah. And I think that's another you know huge barrier. It's just how could I possibly uh, how could I possibly continue if I let go of that definition of right. what has allowed me to get to this place? Everything that that is quote unquote good in my life or that I can feel proud of is a direct result of that character trait that ultimately is responsible for my own undoing. That's right. I remember, that's so perfectly said, and I just, I remember sitting in therapy and I, there was this moment where I had that realization and I said to my therapist, oh shit. And I said, I, I get it. And I think at the end of this, I'm not going to like what I do very much. You know, I think I'm not going to be able to, to keep this up and that. And she said, okay. And I said, well, that scares the hell out of me. You know, uh-huh. like that's, I'm all, I'm all wrapped up in that. I kind of I've kind of put all my chips into the pot of being that. Right. But at being the same time, Jason. how's that working out for you? That's the question, yeah. right? It's like my wife always says to me, you know, she's a she's a brilliant natural doctor, and her question that she always asks people is, "What are you building with that?" And as I after writing the book, I started talking to a lot of young people at, at major universities, 
and you can imagine this message that I'm sharing is not quite what they hoped when they talked. You know, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they're looking for the secret of getting where you were, and that's you're right. telling them that's the wrong path. Yeah, and I and I would say to them, and then so I would say, you know, like I just think we can start with simple things like a deep breath. You know, we can, in fact, you know, we can start with some meditation, and we can start with some nutrition, and we can start with yoga. And they would say to me, and these are like, you know, 18-year-old young people, well, I don't have time for that. And I would say, you know what, just right here, just the question you got to ask yourself is, what am I building? You're fucking 18 and you don't have time to breathe. And I'll just tell you, I'm double your age now, you know, or more. (laughs) And, And it doesn't get easier. It's not like after university, then in comes that breathing space that we've always wanted. It's like, we have to carve that into our you know, what I call daily practice. And in between, you know, getting up and checking your Facebook and running off to class and doing doing the homework and running to the football game and doing all these things that we do, we've got to build in some time for ourselves and some breathing room. And one of the beautiful things that I found in my life is that it's not a time allocation issue. So it's not like work-life balance is like, well, I went four hours at work and now I got to do four hours of meditation. Uh-huh. It's like, we've so neglected ourselves that it's really similar to any relationship that we've neglected. You know, if you don't talk to your wife for a week, the first time you walk into the room and say, honey, I'm sorry, I love you. That has a huge value. Like that counts for a whole bunch of talking that you didn't do. And so that first time that we walk in and sit down on a meditation cushion and take a deep breath and connect with our heart and maybe that lasts one minute, right? But that minute's worth a whole, whole bunch. And so for me, that's really what I've learned is like, we're just creatures of habit. And before I used to have a habit called work myself to death. And now I have a habit called just love myself to life, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, that's, and in there, it kind of becomes inconsequential what you do with the rest of the time. It's okay, then you go to work or you flip the guy off on the road. You know, all this stuff that happens in our life keeps happening but we have these moments where we can come back to our heart and we can remember that we're human beings and, right. and not robots, you know? Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try waking up for free. Plus you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. 
You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You know, what you're talking about reminds me of uh, something that occurred at the beginning of my kind of arc into into this world. Uh, I was going to a yoga class and uh russell simmons used to come to this class right and he's you know he's so charismatic he's like he walks in the room and it's all you know it's like he's just like magnetizing everybody but i remember one day he walked out of the class and he goes man i just i love this yo i love it getting so much out of it but if i keep doing this i'm gonna lose all my money you know it's like and i think the reason i point that out is i think that that's you know in the in the work that i'm sure you do with entrepreneurs and successful people that's got to be a common refrain right like i get it i understand it i know that i need this i'm happier when i'm doing it but they're holding on to that identity and they're still like yes but you know i still need to be successful and i want this and I'm I'm afraid of going in too deep, of taking as deep a left turn as you did, because, you know, I don't want to be, you know, I don't I, I don't know that I want to be like you and running off to China. I still want to be CEO of my my company yeah. or whatnot. So it it's about like carrying these practices in the world. I mean, how do you kind of communicate with people that are coming from that perspective? I think one of the things is that we tend to be so extremist in the way that we view things. So the first thing that I like to say is like. Hey, there's a long way from here to there. Like you can't breathe and you're worried that someday you might turn into a hippie like Jason who goes off to, uh-huh. to China. So it's like, you know, let's just start with step one, you know, and let's just take a deep breath and, and, and just, you know, sometimes it's like, it's not so much about transformation, but it's like, we're gripping so hard onto this reality that we, that we perceive to be us. Right. And so, you know, the fear comes from if, if, like, you could just picture, like, if you're just gripping onto, you know, you're in the water, right? And you're gripping onto a life raft. And the fear comes from if I say, I'm, take, let go of the life raft right now. That's, like, too big of a step, I think. You know, it's like, that, that's, that's really hard for us as human beings. But 
if we said, hey, from here to three years or from here to five years, we're going to just slowly let go. Mm-hmm. And so today, today's part of that plan is just to loosen our grip a little bit. And then we don't have to think so far, you know, down. It's like, you know, in, in health, it's like most, a lot of us who are taking care of ourselves have an idea that we'd like to have a, a long life. We'd like to live, you know, I, I always say I want to live to be 140 years old. And I have friends who go like, that's crazy. And I say, but understand that my body rebuilds its cells every seven years. So I don't have a 140-year plan. I have a seven-year plan. Uh-huh. And I think the same thing can be true in caring for ourselves and in, and in kind of like refiguring our lives a little bit is we don't have to have the what am I going to do in 10-year plan. We can just have right now I'm just going to loosen up a little bit mm-hmm. and see how that feels. And, or I'm going to sit and breathe for a little bit and see how that feels, right? And then don't jump 12 steps down the road because the whole point of mindfulness is being here and being mindful. So we're just, we're here. There's a lot of stress. Let's let go of whatever piece of it we can. And you, you're welcome to cling to all the parts that you don't want to let go, but is there just like one or two things that we can let go of right mm-hmm. now? And I think that's how I try to approach my own my own life because there's really scary things that you know we've been carrying since we were kids and for someone to come along and go hey let's just jump in the pool right that's that's tough stuff yeah 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 yeah. well i think you know another interesting thing that you brought this up in that in the blog post about spiritual entrepreneurism um which is this idea of you know measurable metrics mm-hmm. right and it brings it back to michael rapino again this <laughs> idea that you know in business there are metrics you can measure progress and there are ways of kind of you know setting up what you're doing so that you can identify what's going wrong and what's going right and when we start talking about spirituality that begins to break down very quickly it becomes mm-hmm. this kind of ephemeral thing and you know how do i how do i measure this intellectually i know there are studies out there that when you're meditating you know it translates into x y and z that improves yeah. your life but i'm not i don't know that i can sort of witness that or be the observer of that in my own experience and i would imagine that's a, also a common refrain of you know sort of a type a personality yeah. that's coming to you yeah and i think you know you're right michael taught me in business that you know you could just take the complex and you break it into steps and then you figure out what metric you're going to measure to make sure that you're taking the, the right steps, right? And then you don't have to talk about 99 things. You only talk about that metric, you know? And so I really decided in my own spirituality that the metric was personal joy. And not like, I, one of my teachers like challenges me on this all the time. Like, But I'm not talking about like I had some Haagen-Dazs ice cream and I felt some joy. I'm talking about like this deep, innate, you know, Guru Singh calls it unreasonable joy. That, that just that sense that when I walk out into the world, I just feel okay. You know, I just I feel I feel generally good. You know that that sense of joy. And so then you start to think about what is that? What is that? How does that occur for me? What's what are some metrics? And I think you know I often measure the tension in my shoulders, or you'll hear even as we're talking i'll catch myself running a little bit and i'll just take a deep breath and so these little things that we learn to measure by checking in with ourselves and making sure that we're we're okay because if not we often just jump into some dogmatic thing that maybe doesn't fit into our life or bring us any joy 
you know, but it just, oh yeah, I'm spiritual. I, you know, I'm, I'm a yogi. Oh, okay, cool. So how's that, you know, how's that working out for you? Well, you know, you know, but I, you know, I went to the class on Saturday and, you know, uh-huh. you know what I mean? It's like, okay, I went to yoga class this morning and I felt great, you know, and, and I felt the tension, you know, like, so I just think we come up with what are we really looking to experience in life, right? And, it, and in looking for that metric, it starts to kind of highlight some of the areas that we want to, that we want to shift, right? And, or what am I building with, with this? And so when we look at our life and we say, hey, I work 14 hours a day, I come home, I'm in a shitty mood, my wife doesn't really like me, my kids don't know me, and I'm stressed out all the time. Okay, look, so what am I building with this? Probably early death, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. like that dramatic is like, I'm marching myself to a life where I never live, and at some point I'll die, and guaranteed every person I've ever met who's dying says the same thing. God, I wish I just would have lived a little more. You know, I just wish I would have spent more time with my kids. But finding that trap door is is very difficult. And so I think... And I think it, for me, I called my book And I Breathe because I think it begins with the breath. I think everything, every day, every moment starts with, I'm going to take this breath and can I just be here in this breath? And, and it's like life starts to kind of guide you a little bit, you know? It's like if we can, if we can slow down, again, not a lot. We don't have to like yeah. stop the race. You just slow down a little bit and breathe. You slow down a little bit and be present to yourself. And then your own heart starts to show you the parts that are missing. And then there's a lot of great tools to help to help with that. Yeah. And I think you're, you're signing up for a long journey, you know. Yeah. And I think you have to understand that, you know, the way out isn't going to immediately present itself. And, again, it goes back to us wanting to know, like, where is all of this heading? And, yeah. you know, you can't. You can't know, and you shouldn't know, and it's about getting comfortable with the not knowing so that you can allow, uh, you know, what perhaps is in your best interest to ultimately show up at the right time when you're ready to, you know, yeah. redirect. Yeah, I think that's, that's part of this obsessive working is that we believe that if we, that we can define life and take out the variables, right? So if we just work and control enough moving pieces – we can make sure that none of those scary things are ever going to happen, right? But what we actually find is we invite a bunch of scary stuff yeah. in. And you can't – I have a, a friend who's a brilliant writer, and he, he sent me a note the other day, and it said, um, for sure scheming is part of our life, but it can't keep us safe. You know, and so it's like we have all of our plans and thoughts and five-year plans and goals and action plans – and that's beautiful. It's part of life, but that doesn't make us safe, you know. And I think that's the scary part, and that I think that happens for so many of us who are driven, is we think that we've got it all figured out, and mm-hmm. we've kind of like hacked life, you know. Mm-hmm. And then something really shitty happens, which happens in life, right? Mm-hmm. Like we get fired from our job, or our mom dies, or we get cancer, or a friend a friend dies, and in that moment we see our own mortality, and then we go, well. I can't work anymore. I thought I had this all figured out. I you can't add anything else to this. And so now what? And I think, you know, for me that, that answer came from now what is let's connect to the heart and let's 
do a different kind of work and, and, and see if we can round this out a little bit. Right. So let's, let's get to that moment. So you're, uh, you got this baller job, you know, you're, you're just <laughs> living large, you know, it's the envy of, of everybody, like super sexy job, getting to meet rock stars and hang. I mean, it's like anybody in business school would just absolutely, you know, orgasm over the prospect of having the job that you had. And then your mother gets sick. Yeah. Right. And, you make this decision that you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna stop out from your career and you're gonna spend time with her. Yeah, yeah. So I was in the middle of my second divorce, and um, I got got a call that my mom had stage four cancer. And in the beginning, I just kind of I did what I did. I just kept working. Right. It's just like, oh, you know, it's gonna be okay. And then it became clear it wasn't. You know, just it wasn't gonna be okay. And so I took a little bit of time off, and it was really the first time in probably my life that I'd taken some time off, and I just went and spent time with my mom. I really dedicated myself to kind of being there present uh, to her. And I'm not even saying I took months off. You know, I was taking weeks off here and there, and Mm -hmm. in the end it was, you know, a few weeks. And just through that process, I realized, like, there was so much of life that I wasn't present to, you know, like, things like I didn't know a lot of things about my mom, you know, and there were feelings that she had that I had kind of gone off and just only cared about work and wasn't, wasn't present. And it was also for me this sense of like, Hey, this is where we're all headed. You know, like one, of course, we're all going to die. But I mean, in a deeper sense, like if we don't care for ourselves, we're all, we're all headed to some kind of early death from some kind of disease because life's going to figure out a way to make us listen, right? Mm-hmm. And make us slow down. And I was watching, you know, my kids and my nephews just heartbroken about their grandma dying. And it was just, you know, it was one of those aha moments. And literally when my mom took her last breath, I looked around the room and, and, and I've now I've sat in the room as a, you know, as a, couple people have died and this experience has happened each time it's almost like the air gets sucked out of the room like the life just leaves and so it's like you're holding someone who's alive and there's so much there you know even if they're sick and then there's just a departure and then there's like this empty body in your arms and it's just it's like a very real visual that you're not taking any of this shit with you Mm -hmm. you know what you're all you're doing is you're leaving behind your imprint on the world. And I realized that I didn't, I didn't particularly like, I liked parts of it. I was proud of what I had achieved, but I didn't like some of the imprints that I was, that I was leaving, you know, and I, I didn't want my kids to be holding me at 59, you know, and, and, and I just said, you know, it's time, it's time for a new story for this family and I looked at my kids and realized, and my nephews, this story of work, 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 work to be good was continuing into into them. And that like that freaked me out because now it's mm-hmm. not just history. Yeah, it's it. legacy, right? Like, shit, what I'm leaving behind is this. And so I I tried to go back to work after that. And you know, Michael was, was the best putting up with me. I was distracted. I mean, just didn't care anymore if the 
food in the dressing room was right for some rock band. You know, I was like, <laughs> you know, I, I'm like telling you know, like, people are dying for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care if you got your sushi or not. And and it also became very evident for me the enormity of the job that I had taken on, and I just couldn't do it anymore. And so, you know, Michael and I went back and forth, and you know, we we as I, I laughed. It was like what Chris Martin and Gwyneth Paltrow said. It was like a conscious uncoupling. Uh-huh. You know, it was like it was like really hard because yeah, you know, we we'd been together for so long, and and then there was the personal aspect tied. But we we were really great, and he was wonderful. And um, you know, it, it was about five years ago now. It was just like this is it, and you know, he he allowed me the financial freedom to be able to explore a little bit without having to go out and get a job tomorrow. Right. And, um, and he allowed me the uncoupling from the mentorship that made it feel okay to me. And so, and then I just set out on this journey. I didn't know where I was going after yeah, that. Yeah. And as I said, I found myself on the beach going, you know, who the hell am I now? You mm-hmm. know? And, and this process has been understanding that. Mm-hmm. I think it brings up, a bigger conversation about uh, death and our perception of death in, a, in our culture. And, and, and I think that, you know, in the history of humankind, we've never been more divorced from sort of our, you know, present consciousness of, of, of death because it's separate. It's always removed. It's not, you know, it's, it's something that we, we of course know of and know people have died and all that kind of thing, but we don't, we don't really see it in the way that, our predecessors kind of lived with it all around them all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. in harder times when humans were just trying to survive, there's people dying all the time and animals dying in front of them and things like that. That they're just it's just not part of our experience, right? Yeah. And so we don't have that truly, you know, tactile relationship with what that means yeah. in a way that I think is healthy. And I was joking with my wife on the podcast the other day and she was saying that she wanted to write a children's book called uh let's talk about death or something like that you know and she's like we need to you know we need to understand what this is it allows us to be so much more appreciative of our lives and to be present for what's important yeah you know but we all walk around intellectually knowing we're going to die but on some level um kind of believing that somehow we're going to be the exception and we're going to dodge this thing yeah i think that i think that's right and i think it's partly why we spend so much time distracting ourselves and numbing ourselves because that fear is, I mean, that's probably everyone's number one fear, right? Is I'm, I'm going to die. And the answer is you are, you know, and, and it doesn't have to be ugly. It doesn't have to be traumatic. It doesn't have to come as a result of horrible disease. If we take some time and care for ourselves, you know, and if we're, if we're present, I think, you know, you hear these stories of these spiritual masters who, like, they've lived just this beautiful life, and then they go, like, okay, today's the day, and they say goodbye to their yeah. <laughs> their followers, and they, and they ascend, and we go, like, that's ridiculous. I actually don't think it is. Like, I think there's... That's a healthy relationship with the, the inevitable. That's right. And with, and with a process, right, of, like, I was watching Jimmy Kimmel the other day, and he was talking about... Uh, this uproar that's that's happened about Cecil the, uh-huh. the lion that was senselessly killed and yeah, and, yeah. and he started crying on air. I saw that. And I thought, see that's what happens, right? It's like 
we're divorced from death. We, it's out there. It happens to other people. And then we have to watch or read a graphic account of an animal suffering for 20 hours with a arrow stuck in it. And it hits us, right? Like it hits us. It doesn't make any sense why we would cry about a lion, except for in the lion we find ourselves, right? Or when we have a friend who has cancer, we find ourselves. Or when we go to a funeral and the whole church is crying, we find ourselves, right? We find our own, our own mortality. And I think it scares us because there's all these unanswered questions about what's my legacy? Am I fulfilled? What does this mean? If I die tomorrow, what happens to my kids? We often don't know our kids the way that we wish that we would. So I found that death is a spotlight. And if we can be there and be present, you know, it's like someone's dying, go, be there. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I, I think they probably don't, no, no, go there. They want you there. Hold their hand, be there. Because one, that connection is beautiful. But second, that spotlight on ourselves becomes this really great guide guidepost for where we need to go in our lives you know yeah it's like pulling focus on a telephoto lens yeah right yeah yeah i think that's right I, i've always said that you know like the sort of uh changes that that i've undergone in my own life are really kind of you know have been motivated by just being in enough pain you know that like pain is the ultimate motivator and it's really been the only thing that's ever gotten me to kind of truly you know mend any errant you know kind of character defect you know behavior <laughs> patterns that i have and and in pondering your you know your path um i mean do you think that that you could have gotten to the place where you're at without having the experience with your mom i mean would no. you it, it, do you think it, you would still be at Live Nation, yeah. if your mom was healthy today. Yeah, I do. And I, you know, so I have kind of two belief systems. One, I think there is a destiny or karmatic aspect to our lives. So I'm not saying that this was my karma. This, this, I am saying this is my karma and some way or another, this was my path. But in the purely physical sense of my life, my mom was that door she opened like as you called it a trap door my mom was a trap door mm -hmm. and I fell through it and if it hadn't been for that there was nothing derailing this this programming and this freight train and you know I would I would still be doing exactly what yeah. I was doing. and it's timing too I mean it had it happened 10 years earlier or 10 years later yeah. who knows what that impact would have had yeah you know it's interesting to think about that it so. really is and I think it's the beautiful part of you know, the concept of karma or, or destiny, you know, it's like my mom gave me a real gift because you're right. My mom could have died at 80 and I would have been 60, you know, nearing retirement, mm -hmm. freaked out because how could I ever retire? You know, 20 more years of work, it yeah. been, you know, and but she didn't, you know. And so in in my own experience, my mom's death was her gift of a new life for for me and for our family and it's just started this beautiful path of self-discovery and of learning and as you said but it's not devoid of pain because you know pain is that part that causes us to look to make the left turn as michael mm -hmm. would always say right it's like we don't just hop off a happy track <laughs> you know like yeah things are going good we don't usually go like 
oh, let me just jump over here and see if I can stir up some shit and make my life horrible, you know? Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, and I think, and, and it also doesn't mean that by making this decision and this choice that suddenly, you know, to use your phraseology, it's all, you know, rainbows and, and unicorns. Like, yeah. it's a hard path, you There's know? There's a reason and, why we don't look in the mirror. <laughs> yeah. And like, I'll just, just, you could take it from, yeah. and I didn't do like the, let me look, do it little by little. Like, I just kind of jumped off and was looking in the mirror, scared to death. And it's because it's hard, you know? It's like, I had a young person say, well, like, well, yeah, but wasn't it easy because you'd made a bunch of money? Yeah. And I said, like, no, makes th- it harder. That, that question's the problem, <laughs> but not you asking the question, but the thought process behind that money solves everything is part of my problem that I was experiencing at the time. But it actually makes it harder because I was even more invested. I was like, you don't. The reason why we don't see a lot of people giving up their costume is because it's really hard. And the and the more successful we get, the more like it starts to kind of weave into us. Mm-hmm. And before long, there's like nothing but I am the, you know, fill in the blank, yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, there is no other outside of that. Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. become a prisoner of that identity. So yeah. although you have the financial means to, you know, make another choice, uh, it's almost more difficult to make that other choice. Yeah, I think easy in on the sense of I can pay the rent. So I, I never, I never want to downplay that because I lived through times in my life where my mom couldn't, and so I just I know that's like a very real pressure. So I had the I had solved that part, but what I learned was you know it's like money balances the bank account. But like love let balances our lives, right? And so I had a full bank account and a really empty heart. In fact, a broken heart. You know, I was in just divorced. Mom just died. My identity's gone. And I honestly, like, I didn't look and go, well, I'm happy because I have the money. You know, I was, I was pretty broken. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. I would imagine um, after, you know, you sort of exit Live Nation and you walk out the front door and maybe perhaps there's a, a, a momentary elation and then you wake up the next morning. <laughs> oh, my God, what have I done? Yeah. Like, yeah. did you have a freak out? Yeah, I'll tell you the, the truth. I've been reliving it because I've been watching um, this um, beautiful story of Caitlyn Jenner. Mm-hmm. And I'm like sitting bawling in front of the TV going like, I think there's so much for all of us in this story of this Olympic athlete who was hiding her true self inside. And, you know, she was talking about when she had the final surgery, like, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like a facial transformation mm-hmm. surgery. And then she woke up and she was like, oh, fuck. And they had to like call a therapist over. It's like, yeah. what did I do? And I had that moment many times, you know, it's like, oh my God, like I had it, I had it, it was all good. It was all set. And then I would remember 
you know, the pain. I would remember the things that I had been feeling. And, and it's really what eventually brought me to start to develop a daily practice because without the daily practice, it's just so hard. It's so it's impossible to not fall back into all the old patterns and the old voices that tell you, hey, you better, you know, maybe you better go back and say, oops, I tell yeah, Michael yeah, you made yeah, a mistake. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> unless you have a, you have a, you have a toolbox yeah. with some things that you can implement to yeah. combat that impulse that's so deeply ingrained from your entire life. That's right. And that's what, for me, that's what all this is. You know, it's like, I'm, I study with teachers to learn tools and then I build a toolbox and I think, you know, if we use that analogy, we're going through life with a hammer and we're trying to build the whole house with a hammer, you know, it's like we have our job and that's it, you know, and then the problem comes when you got to put a window in, you know, and you start mm -hmm. breaking shit with the hammer. And so what I've realized is I want to have a really full toolbox. And when something's not working for me, I want to have a different tool. The hammer's not the right. I want to have a screwdriver. I want to have a wrench. Or in the case of meditation, I want to have a few different techniques. You know, hey, that one's not working very well right mm -hmm. now. Great, I want to try this. You know, and so that's kind of been my impetus for, you know, continuing to seek out new teachers because I find each one has a special little gem. If you can just kind of get the intimate moment where you can yeah. spend some real time, you get a little gem. You know, you get you get another tool that you then throw in the the toolbox because they're human beings who have lived their own version of what we're living and they had to figure out how to make it work for them and they figured out little tricks, you know, yeah, little yeah. tools along the way. And and I think you said it when you said they're human beings because that's what they are. And I think, you know, when you kind of enter into this world of new age spirituality, you see a lot of, uh, we see a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of interesting things, you know. Uh, there's a lot of there's bullshit. A, there's a lot know? of bullshit yeah. and there's a lot of, uh, I've joked about this before, but like kind of, you know, staring a little bit too long into the yeah. other person's eyes and, and, you know, holding the hug a yeah, little bit, a beat, right. a beat too long for comfort, <laughs> right. you yeah. know, and that kind of thing. Yeah. And a lot of guru chasing, right? Yeah. And then, and then sort of propping up a guru. And then when, the, when that quote unquote guru shows some level of humanity and a flaw, then it's tearing that person down and, and saying, well, they're, they're, they, they have nothing of value because right. they demonstrated that they're a human being through some foible, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But in reality, they all have little truths that you can extract and, and, you know, kind of weave your own tapestry of what resonates for you and what yeah. works for you. I, I really feel that. And I think there's a lot of fantastic stories out there. And I actually tend to believe a lot of them. You know, I just I tend to believe that, you know, a lot of these masters, teachers who were living in a different time and place and who had a lot of time to focus on their consciousness and focus on their own awakening and weren't distracted by honking cars in New York City, that they that they very well may have achieved some things that we would look at today and go like, oh, that's bullshit. Yeah. But from, Meaning like the, like the guys that go into the caves and don't eat for years and yeah, stuff like that. Right. Yeah, that's you know, right. The, their who, bodies don't keep, decompose and things yeah, like that. Or, yeah, or... You know, they see things or they know things that are coming or they can look at you and tell you something and then it's actually happening in your life. And But I never wanted my practice to be dependent on that. So I made a conscious decision that I was looking for real life teachers. And 
you know, my first my first spiritual teacher was Guru Singh, and you know, a man who's married with children, and who's mm-hmm. a very real human being, right? Who sometimes when we're sitting around, he uses the F word. You know, it's like a very real human being who knows what it's like to to have a marriage and to raise children in 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 the world. And, and I, explain who he is. I mean, he's of the Sikh tradition, yeah. but for somebody who's listening who isn't familiar with Guru Singh. He, he was a, there was a very powerful um, teacher in the 70s called Yogi Bhajan. And um, Yogi Bhajan was a teacher from, from India who in many ways brought yoga to, to the West. And definitely here in Los Angeles, like yoga began with, with Yogi Bhajan. And Guru Singh was his first student, um, a Seattle-born rock and roll musician who um, you know shared stages with Janis Joplin and, mm-hmm. and the Grateful Dead and who figured out, hey, this isn't the life for me and uh, went on his own spiritual journey that eventually led him to Yogi Bhajan. And, um, you know, he just, he's become kind of this real life teacher in Los Angeles, but a deeply spiritually connected man, you know, amazing at 70 years old, just you, know, you you can't do the things in yoga that this man can right. do at 70. It's just like fascinating for me. You know, a very accomplished, skillful meditator. And and then for me, my father, you know, like just, just a beautiful human being who, you know, like Michael Rapino, shares that spot in my heart where I often hear Guru Singh coaching me through. Yeah, yeah. Through the through the and day. Well, we're sitting in his <laughs> meditation yeah. room right now, yeah. right? So exactly. we're getting the shakti. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Just it's, it's very funny that we're doing this here because this is where the whole spiritual journey began. Right. I gotta I gotta take a picture on my iPhone just so I have it documented and I don't forget. You know. Uh, anyway. All right. Um, yeah, a different kind of mentor, but a yeah. mentor nonetheless. Yeah. And. Um, and and a real life guy, and so and, and someone who believes strongly in daily. You know, it's like when I'm in Los Angeles, I I stay with him, and at five thirty, I get a knock on my door, and we get up and we do yoga, and then uh-huh. we and then we meditate. And why? Because that's the practice, right? Like the practice is before all the shit hits the fan in the day, we're gonna connect with ourselves. We're gonna stretch, as he taught me, because life's gonna stretch you today. So we're going to get up, we're going to practice what it feels like to stretch and be able to breathe and be able to stay present through the stretching. And we're going to meditate. Why? Because there's going to be many moments where you're going to need to find your way back to your heart during the day. And if you didn't practice, you're going to get lost. And it's not a one-time practice. I mean, this is a 70-year-old man who in his 20s met Yogi Bhajan. So make the math easy. For 50 years, this guy's gotten Mm -hmm. up every day and done the same practice because he's practicing how he wants to show up in in the world and so he really he set this tone for me of what spirituality was and it was like no dogma i mean he he is a sikh man but who doesn't teach sikhism mm-hmm. so it was never like okay jason so now we're at month 3 and i want you to go put on a turban and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is the thing of like, you got to get past the costuming a little yeah. bit for an average person who kind of, you know, experiences him. There's, there's that, right? So you have to kind of reckon with that a little bit. I think so. And, it, and I think it's like twofold. One, the appearance of many of these teachers 
puts us in a place like immediately you kind of go like, oh, that's a teacher. Mm-hmm. Right. So that part's kind of cool. But then I think there's a, this other side that says I need to transcend that he's not me. You know, like I, I'm sitting here looking at him and because he looks different, I assume I can't I can't access that. That's yeah. right. And I think we have to overcome that part because. If not, we have the tendency to do what you said, which is we put them on an altar and then we're going to tear them down at some point. And then our whole practice falls apart. And what I was intent on building was a practice that existed independent of who the teacher was. Personality. Yeah. And, and, and and their, their humanity. It's like, I, I really believe like if you can't accept the humanity of your teacher, you're going to have a really hard time accepting your own humanity and I think the point of all this is self-acceptance. So I start with, I'm sitting in front of a human being who bleeds when he gets cut, who has developed a set of skills that I want to emulate. And so on my grid, this person you know, possesses some skills that I want to learn. Will you teach me those skills? Mm-hmm. And then along the way, sometimes the teacher really enters your heart and you develop a beautiful friendship the same way sometimes our bosses touch our heart, right? It's like I don't have some expectation like Michael Rapino is not a human being. Uh-huh. I don't have an expectation that Guru Singh's not a human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's interesting, though, is like how do you become the guy who stays with him? Which, you yeah. know, like yeah. it's that scrappy Jason hustling, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like you're hustling to get – you're like, <laughs> I'm going to be around this guy. You know, right? I always wanted to – and I, I was telling my wife the other day this story. When, when Ross Perot ran for president, I was – very young, can't remember how old. And his scrappiness appealed to me. So I remember I went to a rally that he did. And I, and the scrapper in me figured out how to get into the backstage. Like you're going to meet him, yeah. Yeah, and so there's this moment where I have a, a choice to make. I can either take a picture or I can shake his hand. And I told my wife, like, that really has defined my the way I've conducted my life with these teachers as well is I chose to shake the hand. And it's like, I want to have intimate moments with my teachers because I want to understand how this stuff works in those intimate moments. Like I want to understand mm-hmm. the things that, that they're afraid of, the things that keep them up at night, and then how do they apply the tools to use that. And so it's really, you know, again, beginning with Guru Singh, but I've just been blessed with so many deep relationships with beautiful teachers. And I, and I think... I think I, I give them back the gift of when they're with us, they get to be human beings. And we understand that just like me, they want to be loved and they want to yeah. be cared for and they want to be valued in the world. Yeah, yeah interesting. Um, yeah, that's beautiful sentiment. Very uh, open and accepting, right? As yeah. opposed to that pedestal aspect of it that I think you know most people kind of perceive that relationship to be. Yeah. Um, we have to close it down soon, but there's one thing that I, I really want to get into, which is this idea of being uh, being kind of the warrior monk, mm. right? It goes back to that idea of you know when you leave your career and set up set out on this path, it's it's not unicorns and rainbows. It's yeah. it's it's gonna it's gonna bring you to your knees and it's gonna force you to look at yourself in new ways that are quite uncomfortable. And there's gonna be moments that are gonna be extremely uncomfortable for you, but it's about developing this skill set to navigate through the world in a new and kind of, you know, self-sustaining and and powerful way that combines like those, you know, tools of the warrior 
as well as, you know, the tools of the monk. Yeah. So can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, so one of the first trips that I, spiritual journeys out, you know, so I met Guru Singh, and then through a series of events, I ended up at the Shaolin Temple in, in China. And when I was, when, when I got to the temple, I would kind of got to this point where it was like, I've been a warrior my whole life, and my heart was empty and I wasn't feeling good. So I'm going to be a monk and not literally be a monk, but I'm just going to be this meditative guy. Like and I'm just, opting out. I'm opting out. I'm done with this. And I'm just going to be this peaceful monk. And so I figured, great. I got invited to the Shaolin temple and I figured, great. They're going to teach me how to be a monk. And I didn't really understand where I was going. And when I got there, what I learned was not only is it the birth of Zen Buddhism, it's the birth of Kung Fu. They were both born in this, mm-hmm. in this place. And so I meet these monks who are just like adorable. I mean, it's like a cartoon, right? They're just the most beautiful, loving people. And then you see them practice and they beat the shit out of each other. Uh-huh. And you go like, where did that come from? You know? And so it was really perfect for me because I was having this internal battle with the scrapper you know, and I like wanted to go like, okay, you go away now, Scrapper. We need this new, just only heartfelt, peaceful Jason. But that's not authentic, right? It was like it was no more authentic to believe that than to believe that the Jason who only worked all the time was was the whole me. Mm-hmm. And so through the time at the Shaolin Temple, and then you know subsequently a, a lot of work, I just have come to this realization that that's what we all are. We're a warrior and a monk in one body. And it's the toolbox that you talked about earlier. You know, I want to be able, you know, I call it open your heart while sharpening your sword, right? Like I need a sword sometimes in this world. Like we can't deny that. Sometimes in business, we're going into battle. But sometimes we go into battle because all we know how to do is go into battle. And that's where this monk comes into play, right? And it's like, Sometimes you and I can just sit across a table as two human beings and make a deal. We don't have to battle. There's no winner or loser. We can both win. It can all turn out okay. It's not life or death. And so when it is life or death, I can be a warrior. But when it's not, I can, I can come into a situa- situation with some serenity, with some care, with, a, with an open heart. Mm. And I think what gets it takes away some of the fear because... Knowing that the warrior's still here, I'm not quite as scared to be the monk, right? Like, yeah. I'm not quite, you know, it's not like we were talking about earlier. It's not let go of the life raft. It's just, hey, there's another one floating by. Let's have two, mm-hmm. you know? And, and actually, I think the toolbox is let's have a hundred because all these little facets of ourselves can come into play and we can use them as, as tools. And so I think for, for business people, this idea of warrior monk, someone who's very sharp, very tuned, very fierce when necessary, but also serene and has a wider vision, can take those left turns, knows how to care for themselves. I think that starts to give us that the balance, that, that magic word balance that everybody talks about. Yeah, it's really powerful, too, to be able to like stand in your strength and, and make decisions uh, in, a, in a kind of dispassionate way where you're not being kind of, you know, pushed and pulled by... Uh, you know, the emotional roller coaster of, let's say you're in a negotiation and, and the guy you're negotiating with, he knows exactly what button to push to get you to That's react right. and, and to be able to not react and go into that warrior mode and just be like, 
in your strength. Yeah. You know, it's super right. cool. And I, I think, you know, when we talk about spirituality and new age stuff and gurus and all of that, you know, there's this idea, you know, you hear like, oh, it's all bliss and, and, you know, everything yeah. is beautiful. And it's like, no, there's darkness in the world, you know, yeah, like you right. need tools to be able to identify that and strategies for, you know, how to avoid taking that into your own life and how to take, you know, the turn around it and how to confront it when right. appropriate. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I like to say that it's not about finding peace. It's about being at, at peace with what we find, you know, and I think that, that, I, and that comes from security, right? The security that I'm okay because I'm complete and I'm whole. And now I come into a situation and I'm just okay. However, it, however this situation plays out, it's not a, necessarily a reflection of how good I am or how lovable I am. And when the fear's gone, what you actually find is that you don't need the warrior quite as much as you thought you did. Mm. But when you're operating from this deep place of fear, I'm going to get discovered or I'm not good enough or if I don't get this done, I'm not lovable, I'm a failure. You just you need to go to battle all the time, right? It's how it's like we didn't set out to become assholes in business and yet so many of us are because we get deeper and deeper and deeper into the fear. And, and by embracing some of these qualities of the monk, it gives us that deep sense of well-being that then we can just kind of walk into a situation and we'll figure it out. You know, mm. it's going to be okay. I like that, man. <laughs> that's powerful. Well, I think that's a good place to, to, to end it, although I would like to ask you one final question, which is, you know, for that person that does feel stuck, you know, maybe they're in that, 80 hour work week, you know, trap, or they're just, you know, in a job where they got to pay the bills and they're just, you know, it's real life stuff, man. And life is hard and they're lacking that serenity, but they're struggling with that idea of like, well, how is this going to solve my problem? Or, you know, why should I carve out time for this? I mean, is there any kind of wisdom or tools that you could, you know, sort of concisely impart? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the first thing is the acceptance that, it's okay, you know, like that we're, we're just all kind of living the life that we're, that we're living and we find ourselves in some of these really tough things and it's not that there's like a better, different life. There's just this life that we're, you know, we're playing the cards that we're, that we're dealt. And so, you know, I always think that you start with a deep breath, you know, and you just, you know, and, and a message that we're okay and that we're, and that we're loved. And sometimes that's not, you, you just can't grab onto the whole thing, but you can find a little piece. You know, one of my teachers says, get a piece of chocolate and put the chocolate on your tongue and just stay present as you savor the taste of the chocolate. You know, and it's like, wow, that's like, yeah, there is, there's always a little bit of happiness. There's always a little bit of joy that we can find, but it takes really coming back and being, present and then i think the second piece is that we just have to give ourselves a, enough space to move around to go hey i'm 40 years old i'm 50 years old it took me 50 years to get here now i want to make some changes so first i honor where i'm at and then second i need to be realistic about i'm going to sit down in meditation today and probably nothing's going to happen probably not going to feel any different. In fact, I'm going to feel mm -hmm. more frustrated because I don't quite know how to do this thing called meditation, right? It's like, we go, so let's think a year down the road. I'm going to give five minutes a day to meditation for a year. And I think when we start to open up the timeline a little bit, it takes off some of that, 
that urgency and in the and in the crisis of the moment what we have is the breath and what we have is the ability to find little ways that we can show ourselves that we're loved and little ways that we can care for ourselves and then we just do the best we can mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if you could go back to uh yourself as a 20 year old with the knowledge that you have now and the experience that you have now i mean what do you think your your life would have looked like uh, i think you know I can't imagine a life much better than this. You know, it's like, I think as you said, you know, through through all the pain, you just, you find the beauty, right? It's like, mm-hmm. there's just these beautiful moments that happen in life. I have a 17-year-old son who I, you know, I realized the other day, like if I've done nothing over the last five years, I spent every day with my son, you know? And it's like, I talk to him a lot about these things and I think his life will be different but I learned through him that even though he possesses all the tools and meets with all the same teachers, he still has to go through the growth process mm. of going of being him in life, right? So I think I, I think we can't go back and I think we're all just living this life that we're we're living and we get the tools when we get them. And I think the beautiful part is just learning to be at peace and to be loving of, with ourselves no matter where we find ourselves on that path, you know? Beautiful man. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That was great. Uh, that was amazing. Thank you. How you feel? You feel I all feel right? Great. Yeah, feel good. Yeah, good. <laughs> Very good. Cool. All right. If you're uh, crushing on Jason, the best way to uh, connect with him is go to his website, jasongardner.com. The blog is amazing. It's full of all kinds of pearls of wisdom, and we'll keep you busy for quite some time. You got a lot of stuff up there, and you're at the Jason Garner on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, the book is called And I Breathe. Yeah. You can find that on Amazon. Perfect. And uh, do you go out and give talks and speak and stuff like that, or are you more no. like one-on-one kind of teacher guy? Yeah, that's kind of been more the... <laughs> more than the thing but you know like who knows where life's yeah, going <laughs> right never say never <laughs> right? right exactly cool well uh thanks for uh spending the well, sunday thank afternoon you. with I'm me i'm glad man. this worked out yeah, thanks thanks all right peace plants cool. that was a gift that's what that was thank you jason that was amazing and for everybody out there i hope you enjoyed uh hearing Jason's message as much as I enjoyed uh, spending time with him in person. Definitely check out his site and blog at jasongarner.com and please pick up his book, And I Breathe. It's a great read. You will not regret it. Um, Really enjoyed that book. For all your plant power needs, go to richroll.com. We got signed copies of Finding Ultra. We've got our cookbook, Lifestyle Guide, The Plant Power Way. We've got Julie's Guided Meditation Program, Nutrition Products, 100% 100% organic cotton garments, plant power tech tees, lots of cool stuff. Basically, all kinds of goodies to take your health and your life to the next level at richroll.com. Keep sending in your questions for future Q&A podcasts to info at richroll.com. If you like online courses, I got two of those at mindbodygreen.com, the ultimate guide to plant-based nutrition and the art of living with purpose. Just go to mindbodygreen.com, click on video courses. You can learn all about those. Uh, thank you guys for supporting the show, for telling your friends, for sharing it on social media, for always using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com. I love you guys. I would be nowhere without you. I really appreciate it. And uh, I will see you back here in a couple days. Make it great, everybody. Peace. Plants. <laughs>